Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of The Five By, your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, Mason does some detective work in Mystery Rummy, Jekyll and Hyde. Mike visits the Netherlands with Sealand. Ruth is an escape artist in the Exit the Game series. I chase away bad dreams with Onirim, second edition. And finally, Catherine has the cure for what ails you at Healthy Heart Hospital. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Mystery Rummy, Jekyll and Hyde. I'm a big fan of small box card games, as you well know, and the Mystery Rummy series inhabits one of my favorite parts of hobby games, new twists on a familiar mechanic. A big reason designer Mike Fitzgerald is one of my favorites is that new twist on an old mechanic is in a lot of ways his bread and butter as a designer. It also doesn't hurt my love of Mystery Rummy that most of them are about brutal murders or at the very least heinous crimes. There's a miserable dearth of truly great horror games out there that aren't Cthulhu or zombies. See Lindsay's segment on the Bloody End from episode 14 for more on this topic. I'll assume that you're at least passingly familiar with the basic concepts of Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 short story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like most Mystery Rummy games, you are attempting to solve a crime. In this version, you're looking into strange happenings in the back streets of Victorian London, somewhat similar to the original Mystery Rummy game, Jack the Ripper. Gameplay, fundamentally, like all Mystery Rummy games, is you drawing, melding, and discarding. If you're not familiar with the idea of melding, I don't really have time to get into how Rummy games work. So pause this, go look it up, and then come back. What sets the Mystery Rummies, and Jekyll and Hyde in particular, apart are some of the subtle tweaks that Fitzgerald makes with special cards that allow you to take some kind of action that you'd never be able to take in a traditional Rummy game. In Jekyll and Hyde, those cards come in a few different flavors. When you play In the Lab, face up in front of you, you can search the discard pile, which is a commonality in almost every version. Uh, Here the discard pile is called London. Or flip over the top three cards of the case file, which is just the draw deck. Either way, you take one card, but it has to match whichever face of the Jekyll and Hyde card is currently showing. But Mason, what is the Jekyll and Hyde card, you ask? Well, at the beginning of the game, there's a two-sided card sitting face up on the table. One side says Dr. Jekyll, and the other says Mr. Hyde. The most gruesome twist in this version of Mystery Rummy is that you can only meld sets from your hand if they match whichever side of the Jekyll and Hyde card is currently face up. So I might have a beautiful handful of Hyde cards ready to meld, but unless I can draw the potion card and flip the good doctor face down, I'll never be able to play them. All Rummy games at some level are about hand management with some push your luck. Of course you still want to go out first. Uh, If you're unclear about going out in Rummy games, again, please just Google it. Because it means your opponent has to take negative points for everything in their hand, but you also want to hold on to your melds as long as possible. Secrets are power in Jekyll and Hyde. For me, that's a lot of what makes this particular version work so well as two-player, though in general I will say that most of them, with the possible exception of Al Capone, are probably best at two-player anyway. Mike Fitzgerald likes, and I know this because I've heard him say it multiple times, to have an element in a game that's something akin to shooting the moon in hearts. A risky winner-take-all strategy that players are slightly afraid to gamble on using, and it only becomes a viable option in a small percentage of plays. In Jekyll and Hyde, there are really two. Transformation and the shutout. When you shut out, you're able to go out with all of your melds matching the face-up side of the Jekyll and Hyde card. In every game, all players that have melds that match the face-up card score double. But in a shutout, your opponent scores nothing and you score normally. A lot of games of Jekyll and Hyde end with the draw deck running out, which is a rarity in other Mystery Rummy titles. I think this is probably because Jekyll and Hyde is explicitly two-player and most of the other games can accommodate three or four. The transformation card allows players to transform any meld or layoff in front of them or their opponent into the opposite identity. Once it's played, it can't be moved or changed or taken back. So timed correctly, you could transform one of your melds, go out, and pull a shutout all at once. 
It would be incredibly difficult, but it's also absolutely possible, which is really what makes it so dangerous and enticing. Get stuck with transformation in your hand at endgame, it costs you 5 points, plus all of the melds you were hoarding, hoping to use it. Box size and quality in all the Mystery Rummy games is perfectly fine, though I have a number of long-term complaints about the cards themselves. I own every Mystery Rummy game, with the exception of Wyatt Earp, which is not actually a Mystery Rummy game, but really it still is, and I don't care for the card quality on any of them. Cards are entirely too stiff, don't bridge shuffle well, and the black edges tend to chip. Especially when compared to the wonderful card quality in Bonnie and Clyde, also a Mystery Rummy game, though not in the Mystery Rummy series. Worth pointing out here, though, that Bonnie and Clyde is out of print, but is an excellent, excellent game, despite the laughably bad graphic design and completely absurd typos that Rio Grande games for some reason left in. If you can pick up a used copy of that, I would highly recommend it. The rest of the Mystery Rummy series is available from a number of different online retailers. Uh, check BoardGamePrices.com before you buy, as no one retailer has every Mystery Rummy game in stock for some reason that I don't really understand. So, who should buy Mystery Rummy Jekyll and Hyde? People who want to play back-to-back -back hands of cards. People who have played Rummy before. People who play a lot of casual two-player games. And people who love games about Victorian murders. I give Mystery Rummy Jekyll and Hyde 3 out of 3 wax-sealed letters only to be opened on the occasion of my untimely death or disappearance under curious circumstance. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Hello, it's Mike. And today I wanted to talk to you about Sealand. I know some of y'all heard me talk about it before back in week 82 of the What Did You Play This Week podcast thing. But Sealand keeps popping up on Twitter and in my life, and, well, it is my favorite middle-aged man on the cover staring out into the distance while holding something game. Which is saying something because there are so many of those. So many. This game about 17th century Dutch merchants reclaiming the land from the North Sea is still, in my opinion, criminally underrated. Though, thanks to some board game Twitter celebrities like Beth Sobel and Mason Weaver, Sealand has gained a little bit of an underground following. In this classic by Gunter Burkhardt and Wolfgang Kramer, you are building windmills to drain large areas of land for agricultural use. The good news is that the Dutch government is helping. Actions in Sealand are centered around a market where you get the blueprints for your windmills and seeds to plant. The guildmaster travels around the market in a circle, always giving the player the next windmill or seeds for free. So generous. So kind. Except, this is a game, so of course different goods are worth different points. So what if you don't want the next item? Well, at that point you can advance your merchant on the trade house circle, moving them one guild or forward per space you want the guildmaster to skip. Visually, it's a pretty simple mechanism as the guilders on the house show where you are on the track, and with only five guilders available at any time, it's obvious how much you can spend before you reach the end of the track. Guilders are a shared resource. Once you reach the end of the track, you are stuck there until whoever is at the beginning of the track decides to finally spend some guilders to move the track forward. Once you have purchased your tile, you get to the fun part, placing those tiles. I love watching my area grow out from my starting windmill. You place any landscape tiles next to one of your windmills, and any windmill tiles next to any previously placed tile. This isn't quite freeform like, say, Carcassonne in that the board has spaces marked out for you, but the placement rules are simple enough. Once your windmill is surrounded, you harvest by tallying up the points for the landscape tiles that are adjacent to it. Score that windmill and pull your pieces back for use when you're building a new windmill. You get points for the value of each adjacent crop tile unless you only have one type of crop which nets you zero points. Diversity is always better. 
If you have all three types of crop next to your windmill, you get a 5 point crop diversity bonus. There are also islands on the board that you can flip over if you build a windmill next to them. These give you either free crops or a coin for a free turn, and building towards them can help you surround a windmill quickly for some fast points. The game ends when tiles from the draw pile have run out, and someone chooses to or is forced to place the guildmaster on an empty space. The game is instantly over. Take a moment to appreciate the beautiful board you have now created with the windmills and crops. In most games, it would be a shame to cover Franz Vowinkel's amazing board art, but as you're building windmills and planting beautiful crops, the end board state is equally, if not more, stunning. I'll admit, the art was a large part of the reason why I bought this game, and it's still a game that gets regular comments from passers-by all these years later. So, Sealand is a light, thinky, intro-plus game. I have played this game with serious gamers and with new gamers alike, and have yet to have anyone not have fun playing it. I think the player interaction is what sets Sealand apart from most introductory level games and steps it up just a little bit. The shared money can be used to good effect by someone who refuses to spend and keeps everyone at the end with no choice but to take the next available good from the market. You can also build a windmill next to another player's windmill, denying them that space for a crop and possibly keeping them from getting the diversity bonus. Of course, that hurts you a little too, so even better is to be two spaces away and fill the two mutually adjacent spaces with crops that don't help them. Another thing that sets Sealand apart, and why it will always stay in my collection, is that Sealand is scalable. And no, I don't just mean for player count, though it does do a good job of that. I mean in complexity. The board is double-sided, and while the front side is set up to use randomly placed island tiles, the other side of those island bonuses are shown, making for a much more tactical game as you aim for specific bonuses. There are also the Governor and Record Harvest editions. A Governor comes out when an island tile with a Governor icon on it is flipped. That Governor then comes to your windmill, and you are expected to reach a certain number of points when you are harvesting at that windmill. If you reach the value, then you get a 5-point bonus and keep the governor for a possible endgame bonus. Otherwise, you lose 5 points and the governor moves to the next closest windmill. With the record harvest, you get to place a bet on two of your harvests that they will be one of the highest harvests in the game. If you are right, you get bonus points at the end of the game. Neither are options I usually play with when teaching the game, but add depth for later games. These additions really up the hate drafting, another reason why I don't usually introduce them at first. So that's Sealand, a visually stunning, versatile, fun, medium-like game that makes for an excellent bridge for beginners wanting to dip their toes into something a little more complex, or an equally fun game for more seasoned players. If you'd like to discuss Sealand further, or explain to me why Utah has a tulip festival, because honestly, I don't know, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Five by listeners, the truth here, and this week I wanted to talk about the Exit series from designers Inca and Marcus Brand. These games provide one of various options available to gamers looking to get an escape room experience, but to do so at home. Published by Cosmos in 2017, there are currently three games available in the series, with another three announced and showing up in the near future. Each game retails around $13 to $15 and provides a one-off escape room experience. The first three games in the series, the titles you can get now, are The Secret Lab, The Abandoned Cabin, and The Pharaoh's Tomb. Each features the same central idea. Players have been locked in some locale filled with locked items and doors from which they must escape. Each game box includes a rulebook that gives the initial story and tells players how to set up the game. Beneath that rulebook, they'll find a decoder wheel. 
three decks of cards, some odd-looking pieces that will be used later when they're told, and a booklet that has at least one picture of the room in which they find themselves, along with notes left either by their captor or by a previously trapped individual. Using the notes in the book in conjunction with the images and cards from the puzzle deck, players must solve intricate puzzles to open each pictured lock and finally find their freedom. The puzzles take all kinds of forms and all rely upon different types of skills, but the solution to each will eventually consist of a three-character code. Sometimes numbers, but the characters sometimes use other identifiers. Players will use the decoder wheel, lining up the right symbols or numbers under the icon matching the puzzle they're trying to solve, and then will take the number revealed through a window in the wheel and look at a corresponding card from the solutions deck. The card will tell them if they're right or wrong, with a correct answer telling them to take more cards from the deck, some of which provide new puzzles, while others will give hints and clues to existing puzzles, or suggestions that may help with puzzles yet to be found. The game also includes a hint deck. This deck contains three cards for each puzzle, two that provide different levels of clues to its solution, and the third giving the solution itself. Players can look at these if they're stuck, but using them to progress is going to hurt your final score. Solving the puzzles can involve tearing or cutting up components, as well as marking up your cards or pages of the book. As a result, playing an exit game is a one-off proposition. Well, it's a one-off proposition unless you stop frequently to photocopy elements in an attempt to preserve your game in a manner in which you could sell or trade it later. But honestly, I see no reason to do so. Taking breaks to make copies sort of reduces the tension of working against the clock, and even if you're pausing the timer, you're still essentially giving yourself extra time to consider the puzzles while you're reproducing items from the deck. The cost of the game isn't at all prohibitive to its being a consumable product, and some of our greatest moments have come from realizing that manipulating elements in some destructive way has led to a whole new perspective on a puzzle and to a solution we couldn't have imagined. My husband and I have now played all three of the initial exit games as two-player experiences after dinner. We found that they work extremely well in this setting, as there's rarely more than two puzzles and can be solved concurrently, which could be an issue in a larger group, especially if people ended up feeling left out. That being said, others have stated that they enjoy having more perspectives at the table, and more players leads to more frequent aha moments as people suddenly get a spark of inspiration. My bias towards two players might also stem from the fact that my husband and I, well, we're good at these games. We've completed all of them so far with 9 or 10 star scores, and have found that our weak points tend to complement each other, making it really easy for us if we get stuck to simply suggest swapping puzzles or having the other one take a look at it, in the hopes that our different approaches to things will lead to success. We even managed to get nine stars on the pharaoh's tomb despite spending 20 minutes stuck on a single puzzle, and if we'd finished 30 seconds earlier, we'd actually have had the perfect score. One of the things I love about the exit games is the variety of puzzles incorporated in each game, which means they don't feel samey. We've already pre-ordered the next three games from our local game store, and we did so as soon as we found out they were coming. We can't wait to see what fresh hell the cosmos and the brands want to put us through. So if you're interested in figuring out devious puzzles against the clock, but you'd rather do so in the comfort of your own home, then I highly suggest checking out the Exit series. Now I will say of the three games, my favorite was The Pharaoh's Tomb, 
but I wouldn't suggest it being your first one, as it's a little bit of a step up in difficulty from the others. But whatever one you pick, once you've escaped, feel free to come find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Roof, that's an R, four O's, and an F. And I'll be happy to talk about any of these puzzles. But for now, thanks for listening. In the past year or so, I've developed a real appreciation for solo board gaming. I love board games, and I love being alone, so solitaire board games is a natural. Between dedicated solo games and multiplayer games with solid one-player rules, there's a surprising variety of solo board games out there, and Onirim is a classic of the genre. Designed by Shadi Torby and originally published in 2010, Onirim's second edition was released in 2014 by Z-Man Games. The box says one to two players, but in my opinion, it's a one-player game that also has two-player rules. Onirim shines as solitaire, and that's how I play it. Onirim has a theme about a labyrinth and nightmares and doors and keys and moons, but really it's an abstract game. It has a theme the way a standard deck of playing cards has a theme. You use the symbols to identify cards, but the meaning of the symbols does not matter at all to the gameplay. They could be pictures of animals or different kinds of cars or superheroes or anything at all. So dreams it is. Onirim is part of the Oniverse, a series of games by Torby that are all primarily solitaire. Besides Onirim, the Oniverse also includes Urbion, Sylveon, Castellion, and Nautilon. They each have something to recommend them, but Onirim is the first, and the one I turn back to most often. To play Onirim, you draw cards from a deck, trying to collect eight cards that look like colored doors. You can claim a door either by drawing a door and then playing a card of the same color from your hand that has a key symbol. Or, if you play a run of three cards in a row of the same color, you can go through the draw deck and pull out a door of that color. Playing runs of cards is complicated by the rule that you can never play two cards in a row with the same symbol on them. There are only three symbols on the cards, moon, suns, and keys, so this restriction often comes into play. And once a run has been broken by another color, you have to start over. So far this sounds pretty easy, and it would be if not for the ten nightmare cards in the deck. When you draw a nightmare, you have to resolve it by discarding cards or by putting back a door you'd already collected. You lose the game by running out of cards before claiming all the doors, so every discard feels painful and giving up a door doubly so. While the rules are simple and straightforward, the only thing about this game that isn't so simple is how do you pronounce it? I've heard many different pronunciations, Onirim, 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 etc. I used to say Onirim, but I recently learned that the name derives from the word oniric, meaning dreamlike or related to dreams. Knowing that, I think the pronunciation Onirim makes the most sense, but I won't judge anyone who pronounces it differently. A game of Onirim is 10 to 15 minutes of relaxing, calm enjoyment. And when you've played enough that it doesn't present much of a challenge anymore, the second edition comes with seven expansions right in the box. Each expansion adds a mechanism that makes the game a little easier, and another mechanism that makes it a little harder. You can add the expansions to the base game separately or in any combination. I've found experimenting with the expansions as just enough variety to keep Onirim from feeling stale, even after countless plays. The second edition also includes a beautiful wooden meeple called Little Incubus, shaped like one of the shadow figures on the Nightmare cards. There are a couple of optional rules that use Little Incubus to make the game a little easier, but I never use it like that. I just take it out of the box and set it in front of me like a start player marker. I know a solitaire game doesn't need a start player marker, but what can I say? Little Incubus is adorable. My only real complaint about Onirim is the shuffling. Every time you draw a door and can't claim it, you have to shuffle it back into the deck. 
Every time you refill your hand after resolving a nightmare, if you draw any doors or nightmares during that draw up, you have to shuffle them back into the deck. It feels like you are constantly shuffling the deck, and these are not small cards. It's probably fine for a big person with big hands, but I'm a small person and I find shuffling Onirim a bit awkward, if not outright uncomfortable. I hate to think of trying to shuffle those big cards over and over with arthritis or a similar condition. Now, is there too much shuffling in Onirim? An old friend once told me that the true purpose of solitaire games is to waste time. From that point of view, the constant shuffling is a feature, not a bug. But if you're like me and prefer less shuffling for physical reasons, or even just find it tedious, there's an app for that. Asmodee Digital has created an Onirim app for both Android and iOS. The app is lovely, an excellent implementation of the game, and makes it easy to play Onirim in the waiting room before an appointment, in line at the store, waiting for your code to compile, anytime you're stuck with a few minutes to fill. You can even add a couple of expansions to the app for a nominal cost. And best of all, the app does all of the shuffling for you. Although I also love tense, challenging solitaire games, the ones I play over and over are lighter games that let me unwind and do something a bit more engaging than watching TV. As relaxing solitaire games go, Onirim is one of the best. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not escaping from nightmares through colored doors, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Healthy Heart Hospital is a 2015 game designed by Anna Maria and Scott Nelson and published by Victory Point Games. The charming vintage-style art is by Chelsea Atio, and the characters on the boxing cards may look familiar, as they're all based on actors and actresses of the 1950s through 80s. The goal of this game is to survive nine rounds, ending the game with a ton of prestige and money. The joy of this game is in the synergy of its mechanisms. They all pull together to make an all-too-real take on the vagaries of hospital management. The major clever mechanism of the game is managing a pool of disease cubes to try to cure patients admitted to your hospital and keep those that are not yet admitted from dying before admittance. The luck of these cube draws can be mitigated by using specific doctors to weed the pool, to training doctors and specialties, and adding workers to target hotspots. There's a bit of a learning curve with this co-op. If you let your waiting room fill up with patients and don't transfer them into beds in your wards, they can die waiting to see a doctor. If you bring a lightly sick person into an operating room or a ward, you may regret it when a much sicker patient dies due to your inattention. Your administrator has their own interests at heart. And since the administrator moves with first player, the common issue of co-op alpha gaming or coaching is lessened as that person has an extra powerful action at their disposal, and with that change, a reminder that there's a new boss in town. Each round, you're going to start by playing two ambulance cards to the board. These ambulance cards bring a variable amount of different types of sickness into the two sides of your waiting room. The chairs in the waiting room are color-coded to accept up to two patients at a sickness level of one to four cubes of each different specialty that your hospital treats. If a patient ever ends up with five cubes in the waiting room, they die, and you're penalized for it. The next step is to see whether the patients already admitted to your wards are getting sicker. You draw a cube for each patient, and if the disease cube matches the color of the patient, they get sicker. There are also black cubes in the bowl that are placeholders. When drawn, they require a redraw of two new cubes to replace them, and if you draw more black cubes, you'll just keep on drawing until your board is littered with sickness of all varieties until the cup is empty of them for the round. So while there is little chance that a patient will get more than one level sicker during your rounds, I have seen a fairly healthy patient die after a particularly memorable draw. One of the great strengths of Healthy Heart Hospital is the variable player powers that make this game feel different each time you play. 
Each doctor and administrator has a specific strength and asymmetric benefit that can help stem the tide of death and disease. One of my favorite doctors, Dr. Lucky, gives you a discount when purchasing the morgue and also helps you hide a dead body for free. This can be extremely lucrative if the dead bodies are piling up. Also included to change the game are rooms that you can add to your hospital. Each has two sides that you can build and upgrade over the course of the game. Many provide prestige points in addition to helping solve specific types of problems. The rooms are diverse and interesting opportunities to change the direction of the game, from a break room to specialty operating rooms. Building and upgrading your facility can be quite powerful if you can spare the money. My favorite room is the clinic, where you can send your least sick patients. This keeps them from clogging up your waiting room and dying on you. You get a little money for healing them, but no prestige. Variability continues with each ward getting assigned a ward ability that makes it more difficult or more rewarding to treat patients there. This can encourage the building of operating rooms to avoid treating patients in troubled wards, or treating less sick patients when the rewards for curing them are significant. The employees you can hire run the gamut from a chaplain that can pray each round for one patient, possibly even causing a miracle healing to happen, as well as lawyers and financial advisors that can help make sure you don't go bankrupt due to malpractice. The real question is, what makes this economic simulation so darn fun? One would think that the theme would be depressing, if not downright boring, but it's not. This game is particularly compelling as a window into the ugliness inherent in many businesses that buy and sell in human health. I am often bothered by the theme of a game that rewards players who engage in slavery or animal slaughter, so I wondered if this game would hit those same buttons. It doesn't. In this game, sometimes people die in spite of your best efforts or due to your complete neglect, but the game does not seem particularly concerned with the morality of the players. When a patient dies, the consequences can be severe, and you are rewarded for minimizing your liability and preparing for the worst. I have been well-trained since pandemic days that sometimes, even with your best efforts, the game ends littered in little disease cubes, and what that represents is pretty terrible. I am thankful that my real work is not daily a case of life and death. My real work is in education, and you can find me at Kybrarian on Twitter or Cat Library on BGG. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to The Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five By Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to The Five By on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your five-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at fivebygames.com. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.